Uh, I'm going to invite Sam up here in a second. So Sam, uh, we are excited about this. Church and school are one. You know, we say that. A lot of churches say that. We mean it. And uh, as evidence of that, Sam was originally, just uh, with his family, a part of this church and a teacher at another school. Um, We asked him to come be our headmaster because he had this incredible body of skills and he loved this church community and we needed someone that had all that. But we knew that ultimately our desire was to expand his role to be one of our pastors over church and school. So that's his role, and he is going to launch for us our school year theme today, which is all in, and I hand it over to you. All right, good morning, Rio. How are you doing this morning? Oh, no, 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 no. You, you guys are usually good at this. How are you guys this morning? All right, that's, that, that'll work. All right, so like Matt said, this morning I'm coming up as campus pastor, and we are launching a school year, and this year our headmaster, Dee Dee Hunter, Give Dee Dee a big hand. She's around here on her little scooter somewhere. But uh, she has chosen the theme for this year, it's all in. And so if, you know, if you've ever watched a poker tournament, the idea is you take all your chips, everything you have, and you shove them out into the middle of the table, you're totally invested. Everything I have pushed to the center of the table, I'm, I'm placing all of my bets on this. And the verse to go along with that is a challenging one that we, we tend to read right past and go, okay, well, this, is, this is a cool verse that tells us that everything, we should be all in. But listen to the words of this verse and, and let it challenge you. And whatever you do, and word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. That word does not leave caveats. That, that verse does not leave any caveats for you. Whatever you do, <laughs> that, that pretty much includes everything. And word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. There is nothing according to the scriptures that you are allowed to set aside as your own agenda. You do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, whatever you do. This is a heavy calling. And it's a calling, if you call yourself a Christian, that's on you. When we started this year, I met with some of our new teachers and we talked about how one of the key roles of any teacher or staff member at Bethany Christian School, you're not just a teacher. You're not just a receptionist or an admissions director Every single person that works at Bethany Christian School, and I'm going to tell you, every single person in this room that counts themselves under the banner of Christ, you are a royal priest. You are an ambassador to the Lord Jesus Christ. How are you a royal priest? You're an adopted son or daughter of the king. Do you realize the gravity and the weight of your identity? You have been adopted by God Almighty. You carry royal inheritance from the king of the universe. You're royalty. And you're a priest. What is a priest? We think Old Testament or Roman Catholicism when we usually think of a priest. A priest is somebody that is intended to point your eyes and to bring you into the presence of God. 
That is the calling of every single person who works at Bethany, and that is your calling. You, your existence is to spread the sweetness of the aroma of Jesus to make him attractive, to lift up his name, to glorify him in everything that you do so that the watching world can look at your life and long to have the treasure that you have in Jesus. So how would you say that you do that in your life? What sacrifices do you make to show the world that Jesus is more precious to you than any other thing, than any bank account, money, addiction. What, what sacrifices are you willing to make to show the world that Jesus is more precious to you than everything? Because this verse, what it's saying is you have no right to your own agenda. Everything that you do is done in his name. You are an ambassador of Christ in this world if you bear his name. And that is intimidating. You know, you talk to police or whatever, one of the biggest plagues that society has is identity theft. People can do a lot of damage to you if they assume your name, can't they? They take out credit cards, run up debts, get your social security number, mess up a lot of things. You walk around under the banner of God's name. You're under his identity and the way that you live impacts the way the world sees him. There's a, the third commandment, and we often take, his third commandment says this, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And immediately what we do with that commandment is we reduce it to things that come out of your mouth. But remember what Colossians 3.17 says, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. And I would say to you that this commandment that we race right by because we simplify it to say, well, that means don't say Jesus Christ when you're angry or don't take the name of the Lord. Like don't just say it without purpose. And we reduce this, this heavy, beautiful command down to just words. But I'm going to suggest to you today that that word has a, or that commandment has a lot more to do with the way that we live than the way that we speak. That way, the way that it's translated, you shall not take, the Hebrew word there is most often translated carry or bear. You shall not bear the name of the Lord your God in vain in an empty way that makes it look cheap. Do not walk around saying, I'm a Christian. Don't walk around under the banner of God's name and then turn and make that name look cheap and worthless. That's what that commandment is getting after. And I'll tell you, I've had seven years as a headmaster, and this year I'm a campus pastor. I've done lots and lots of interviews of people that are coming into admission at Bethany Christian School. And I've come across lots and lots, and I'm sure you have too, of people that say, I used to be in the church. And it's like, I, before they even finish what they're going to say, I can tell you how the, where, where it's going. I used to be in the church, but I had a really bad experience. 
Somebody in the church was cruel to me. Somebody judged me. They made me feel terrible. They weren't there for me when I needed mercy and grace most. They didn't show me kindness. Some ambassador who goes through this life bearing the name of Christ wounded me deeply and now I want nothing to do with his church. You know what I don't hear? Jesus is not beautiful enough. I don't hear, you know, this whole grace and mercy and love bit. I, I don't want any of that. I see people desperate for that. But those that walk around under his name have made them shy away from this. One of the most famous examples of this happens in the Old Testament with King David. Here's somebody who's royalty. And his job is to literally make God look beautiful and to spread his garden and his righteousness and his kingdom, right? And what happens? When he's young and he has nothing, man, he is on fire. He's a man after God's own heart. But it's when he gets power, when he gets money, when he gets all the trappings of this world, his heart veers away from God. And one day he gets up on his rooftop and he sees a young woman that he's attracted to and he says, never mind God's agenda. Mine. And he takes her and he has an affair with her and he has her husband killed. And it's like one example of evil, self-absorbed wickedness after the next. And he's so consumed with himself, he doesn't even see what's wrong with it. Until God sends the prophet Nathan to speak to David. And he tells him a parable that makes David angry. And the prophet concludes by telling David, you're the problem. You are the man in the parable that's evil. And David gets it finally. And he's crushed under the weight of realizing I have walked away from my God. I've been a bad example. I have, I've, I've sinned against him. And the weight of that crushed him. And so when Nathan starts leveling the charges of what David had done wrong, he brings up the adultery, he brings up the murder, but he lays this charge at the feet of David when he gives consequences. He says this, by this deed, you have given an occasion for the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme his name. There's the third commandment. And the way that he had lived as the king of Israel, as the one who is supposed to be, the one who represents God to the nations, to his own people. He had given an occasion for those that want nothing to do with God, every opportunity to say, see, that gospel doesn't change people. See, there's no difference between those religious people and us. It is a heavy, are you, like this is intimidating that everything you do is to be done in the name of the Lord Jesus. Intimidating. It's a weight we can't carry. Don't, I don't want people to look at me to see a reflection of Jesus because I'll tell you right now, I'm going to fail all day long and you're going to fail. And so here's this weight. Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. You're his ambassadors to the earth. And Paul comes and lays this on your shoulders. And if you're reading it right, it should crush you and scare you. And I'm going to leave that tension until we go through this message. When I look at people 
who, when I, when I want to see people who have zeal for the Lord, who, who are all in, who would lay everything down, one of my favorite era of the church history to study is that early church, man. Those guys were amazing. The, the women, the children, I mean, it was insane stories. And I want to share some of them with you this morning because I, I, it should inspire us. Because our faith doesn't ask us to sacrifice much. Their faith asks them to sacrifice greatly. But what I want you to see is the motive of why they did it. So in Acts 15, we have the the council of Jerusalem. All the guys get together and what they're asking is the Gentiles, those people who are not Jewish, traditionally, you know, the Old Testament is all about what's going on in Israel, but now the New Testament, the gospel's going to the ends of the earth. What, how do Gentiles become a part of a faith community? And so what they're asking is, do you have to be circumcised or not? And to the Gentiles applause, they decided, okay, the grown men do not have to be circumcised. And everybody said, whew. But then they said this, it's not, you know, in addition to your faith, these are things that we still want you to do. We do not want you to partake in meals that have been sacrificed to pagan gods. Do not engage in that anymore. And if you're in here and you're reading Acts 15, you go, well, what does that matter? Like, I've never run into that problem. We don't sacrifice meat to pagan gods. I don't have to avoid that. No big deal. To the first century, second century, third century Christians, this was a matter of life and death. This was social suicide if you agreed to this. And let me explain why. In first century, second century, third century Rome, everything about your life and religion was public. In America today, our religion is private. We don't talk about it much when we go outside the walls of the church. In Rome, civic religion was everything. It was all over the place. It was in everything you did. When you had a meal, you devoted the meal to Jupiter, the Roman god, or to Jove or Athena or whoever it was that your city tended to worship. You had funerals where everything was about paying tribute to the God, public festivals where everybody would not work for that day and you would go out in the streets and you would give tribute to the gods. And so if you were a Christian, I want you to just get this, any meat sacrificed to the God, you could not participate in it. That means your social life, you being able to go and participate in dinners, gone because most of the meat was bought from the sacrificed animals because they were pure and clean And so most of the meat you couldn't take part of anymore. At parties, when people would pour out libations and then offer the drinks, they poured out the libations to the God, which meant you said, no, I can't do this anymore. At ceremonies for weddings, births, mortuary sacrifices, public festivals that happened all the time. Claudius had 159 of them in one year. And in every one of these occasions, what I want you to get is that it was the duty of the Christian to say, no, I'm not going to participate in this. In the Roman world, paying tribute to the gods, honoring the gods was seen as the reason why the nation had prosperity. And when Christians said, I will not participate in this, the whole Roman world hated them. The best illustration, and I don't want to get into the, whether or not this is good or bad because I really don't care. It's for an illustration purposes only. But the best illustration I could come up with, what do, what do Americans hold as really precious? Maybe something like hmm, the national anthem. 
Maybe somebody kneeling during the national anthem. You see, when Colin Kaepernick took a knee, the whole nation was infuriated. Maybe rightly so, maybe wrongly so, but what I want you to get is that level of furor was toward the Christians and the early world. And what did they do? Would you have eaten the steak to avoid that furor? (laughs) Would you have taken the drink and said, oh, no big deal? Paul comes to them and says, whether, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. This was a big deal. And I want, I'm such a history nerd and I apologize for this in advance. But I want you to enter into their world. I want you to see, like, what did people say about Christians in the first and second century? Like, what did they face? What did the people in the city of Colossae face when, when Paul comes to them and says, whatever you do, and word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. What would that have cost them? What were they walking in? Because it's not like us where it's like, no big deal. In the name of Jesus, no one's going to punch me. Or Then this is the attitude. Lucian of Samosata wrote this. The poor wretches, referring to Christians, have convinced themselves that they are going to be immortal and live for all time. They mock death. Why? Because they were getting arrested. And when they said, deny Jesus or we'll kill you, the Christians mocked death. Fine. Death has no hold on me. Do you know who my savior is? They mock death and even willingly give themselves into custody, most of them. Furthermore, their first lawgiver persuaded them that they are all brothers of one another after they have transgressed once and for all that by denying the Greek gods and worshiping that crucified sage himself and living under his laws. Or Celsus, the skeptic, listen to the hatred in what he writes about these Christians. Denying the gods, this is the language of sedition. If they refuse to render due service to the gods, let them not come to manhood or marry wives or have children, but let them depart hence with all speed and leave no descendants behind them that such a race may become extinct from the face of the earth, demanding genocide. Here's a governor who lived very close to Colossae writing to the emperor Trajan. Trajan had basically said, we want to wipe them out. We're tired of this Christianity business. And Pliny writes back to Trajan saying, I don't think you understand. This is going to be a big deal. There's a lot of them. And he writes this, this contagious superstition, Christianity, is not confined to the cities only, but has spread through the villages and rural districts. In other words, if you tell me to wipe them out, this is going to be a lot of people being put to death. It seems possible, however, to check and cure it. If we start killing them or persecuting them, maybe they'll stop. It appears now that the temples, the pagan temples, which had been almost deserted, might be attended. They'll be attended again. The sacred festivals, which long have lapsed, will be renewed. Nobody's going to them anymore. These Christians are messing up everything. And the food for sacrifices will again find sale, though up until recently they had almost no market. And so let me tell you what happens. And this happens in churches all the time and still happens to this day. These Christians in Colossae started saying, don't do this, don't do this, don't take the food, don't, don't offer up these pagan sacrifices, even if the world's going to hate you, set yourself apart, don't do it, don't do it, and slowly but surely they forgot the object of their worship. 
Christianity was reduced to whether or not you ate or drank or went to festivals. And Paul in Colossians is writing, no, that's not the sum of what this means. I can't tell you when I was early in my faith and I was trying to figure out this whole Christianity thing, when I would talk to people about Christianity and Christianity would be reduced to, well, I I don't drink or smoke. What? Well, I do. (laughs) Then. And I still drink, but not smoke. But here we go. Moving on. What Paul wants to communicate is that if you make Christianity about what you have to leave behind, what you have to sacrifice, the cost that's associated with it, your faith will feel like slavery. Christianity is not merely what you're leaving behind. It's like last week when Bishop Glover said, yeah, you can do all the right things and you can check all the boxes and you can have good doctrine, but if you leave your first love, your lampstand's light will be snuffed out. And here Paul is saying, you guys are bearing up heroically. You're embracing all the things, all the suffering. But then he says, he goes, stop. And he starts Colossians 3. And he says this, if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God, set your mind on things that are above, not on things on this earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Do you get what Paul is saying here? If you spend your life imagining that Christianity is just all of the things that I have to not do, you'll be powerless to not do them. It'll just become slavery. You'll never have victory over that addiction just by sheer effort. And even if you do, you'll resent it. What Paul is saying is stop looking at this stuff and fix your eyes on Christ. Look above. Look at the treasure that you already have. Look at the the value and the beauty of his love. Do you know what you already have? Stop for a moment and realize that the God of the universe loves you to such infinite measure that he left the throngs of angels and praises of heaven and everything, all the comforts that he had, came into this world reduced to this impoverished baby, a homeless man, a man who knew hunger and betrayal, suffering, went to the cross, felt alienation from God. This God was all in for you. And what does he say? He says, I go to prepare a place for you. Right now, he rejoices over you with singing. He abides in you if you are a believer. He sings over you and he gives you the promise that one day when sin is removed and you're glorified, that his infinite love will pour into you and grow you forever. His peace, his joy, all of it is your inheritance If I'm looking at the petty, sinful mess that I am constantly trying to gain victory over, if I focus on the mess, religion feels like slavery. If I focus on that, him, and what he's done for me, and the treasures that I have in heaven and in him, and the love that he has bestowed upon me, now all of a sudden this treasure 
makes these things look petty by comparison. This is why Paul, if you did your personal worship, this is why Paul in Philippians 3 can say, I've I've lost everything and I count it as rubbish, sewage, that I can gain him. Christianity is not about what it's calling you from. It's about what it's calling you to that makes the from look petty. You remember when Pliny wrote to Trajan and said, if you start putting people to death, this is going to be a really big deal? One of my favorite early church fathers, Ignatius of Antioch, got caught up in Trajan's persecution. And Trajan came and arrested Ignatius. And I want you to think, what would it have been like? And what is this guy's heart? How could he do this? Listen to what happens. When Ignatius... If refused to renounce his faith. So they come to him and say, give up your faith. Publicly deny Jesus in front of the crowds. Ignatius says, absolutely not. I can't do it. I won't do it. And so then Trajan pronounces this sentence. We command that Ignatius, who affirms that he carries about within him. Hear that. That's so beautiful. Within him, him that was crucified, be bound by the soldiers and carried to the great city Rome, and there he will be devoured by the beasts for the gratification of the people. They hated Christians so much. This was for the gratification of the people. And upon hearing the sentence, Ignatius cries out, I thank you, O Lord. What? I thank you? Could you do that? I mean, this feels so like theoretical, and it's like, okay, Sam, that's nice. You know, are you calling us to martyrdom? I want you to listen to why Ignatius could say that. He writes a letter to the Roman church where he is being transported, where his life will be taken from him on a cross, where he will die. And he writes to the Roman church and he says, brethren, do not hinder me from this. Don't try to get ahead of me and prevent my death. Why? When I suffer... I shall be the freedman of Jesus and shall rise emancipated in him. I'm going to run out of that grave. All the pleasures of this world and all the kingdoms of the earth shall profit me nothing. Hear this. Him I seek who died for us. Him I desire who rose again for our sake. This is the gain that's laid up for me. And in contrast to that, anything I have to give up is rubbish. And so you ask yourselves this question, like, can I relate to that? Would I die for Jesus? And you might not be put on a boat and taken to Rome and crucified on a cross to give your life, but the Bible expects you to die. And every day we make the decision as to whether or not we will die out of loyalty to Jesus or whether or not we're going to take the comfort and push our own agenda. The next verse in Colossians, listen to what it says, because this is reality for you. Therefore, put to death what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil, desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And in these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But you must now put them all away. Anger, 
wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. You are being called to put your selfish nature to death every day. And I got news for you. That's very hard. Some might say that's every bit as hard as just going to Rome to a cross and having it done with. This is a million times a day having to die to your selfish nature. Put it to death. Can you look at that option and say, I thank you, Lord. You're worth it. Paul then goes on, and this is really beautiful. He's kind of putting a thumb in the Roman world, but I love this. Here's my fashion show from the Romans. To understand this next passage, you kind of have to understand this a little bit about Roman customs. These are the Roman sumptuary laws, and one of the famous expressions of the ancient world, hang with me, was in Rome, you were what you wore. You were what you were. You could look at anybody on the street and go, oh, that's a slave, that's a prostitute, that's a senator, that's a general. Why? Because there were restrictions written in the Roman law about what you were allowed to wear. So a citizen could wear a toga, but if you look at the far other extreme, a slave or a a mere workman, they could only wear a tunic. A slave wasn't allowed to add dyes to their tunic. They had to wear just straight up, no coloring. The workman could add coloring. The senator had the flavuses that came down with the red colors. The, the, The emperor could wear purple and golden lace. And so you knew who you were coming across by the way they talked. And interestingly, for the emperor himself, he was the only one that was allowed to wear an all purple garment with the golden lace on it. And the only other thing that was allowed to wear the robes of an emperor were the statues of the gods. Why? Because it was saying, he is like a God. And so then Paul moves on. He's not just saying, hey, give up and walk away and put to death. He's calling you to something so much more beautiful. We walk around believing that we are in these stations and classes and we feel shamed. We feel unworthy. Some of you might be in this church going, man, I don't fit in. My life's a mess. If only if people knew who I was. Listen to Paul's words that come next. You have put off the old self with its practices. You've taken off that which identified you, that which shames you, that which keeps you in this low rung. Take it off. That is no longer your identity. Let it go. Be free from that shame. And put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Whoa, did you get what just happened there? Take off your shame. Take off your guilt. Lay it down. That's what the cross was all about. He paid that penalty. Take it off and put on the new self. What is the new self? It's the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. When he went to the cross, he took your filthy garments and he wore them and suffered for them. He took the role of the slave. Why? So that you could be clothed and robes that are being made after the image of your creator. You now wear the garments of God. Do you know how precious and powerful that is? Let go of your shame. See yourself in the light of how God sees you. And here there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised. There's no more cliques and, and trenches and groups. No, Everyone is now Christ. He is in all. And he is all. Do you see this room 
filled with those that wear the righteousness of God himself, clothed in royalty, coverings that are reserved only for God. And how do we walk in that? Because I'm telling you, if I have to, okay, I might wear the regal robes, I might be clothed in God's righteousness, but if I have to leave here and do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, I'm going to fail. I'm going to disappoint you, God. I know it. So when he gives you instructions for how you're to then live, he does not give you a list of moral things. He goes from this, put on the righteousness, the Lord, right? To say this, put on then as God's chosen ones, his ambassadors, holy and beloved. You are beloved, compassionate hearts. You can do that. Kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against one another, forgiving one another as the Lord has forgiven you so that you must also forgive. And above all of these, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. I don't want to go around in this world saying, look at me and look how holy I am and look how I fulfill the law and how wonderful I am. No, and that's not what the scriptures call me to. The scriptures call me to be small in my own eyes and to go around saying, the Lord has rescued me. It is by his grace alone. He is so wonderful and kind and compassionate. And when I deal with people who are hurting, I'm not the moral authority that drives them into the ground. I'm the one who comes beside them wounded with scars and said, I've been there. Look to him. He will lift you up and he will clothe you in his perfect righteousness. Look to him. He is the only hero. Sam Caston Smith is a scumbag. He is the hero. And when you grab hold of him, then you can let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. You have his salvation. The Lord who went all in to give you an inheritance. It can't be stripped away from you. You're not going to earn his favor. He died for you when you were yet his enemy to win you and clothe you. Let that peace rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. We don't serve the Lord going, oh, I've got, I've got a, everything I do in the name. Oh, no, 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 no. It's, oh my goodness, the God of the universe has called me? He is, he's died for me. He's, he's given me this grace, this freedom, and now I get to go around and tell people about it? Be thankful that you've been called to that. Be thankful that you're his ambassadors. And let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing songs, celebratory. Come together and make much of him singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with, there it is again, thankfulness in your hearts to God. And here's the calling. And whatever you do, dressed in his righteousness with an overflowing sense of gratitude for the fact that your inheritance cannot be taken away from you. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So Rio Vista, Bethany, let's go all in for the beauty of God.
Let's be his ambassadors in this world that shows this world a love it can't make sense of. Let's pray. Father, Lord, I thank you so much for your goodness. You are so wonderful. I look to, to men like Ignatius that just count it joy for the, for the chance to sacrifice and surrender for you. And he didn't do that out of duty or fear. He did it because he absolutely was overwhelmed with gratitude and a desire to draw near to you and to let go of everything in this life in order to grab hold of you. Lord, I pray that you would give us hearts like that. And for those in here that are struggling through different seasons of life, addictions and struggles and broken relationships and dashed hopes, Lord, we will not fix our lives by trying harder. We will fix our lives by loving you more so that all those broken things don't control us. They're no longer masters over us because we have a master that is far more beautiful and far more satisfying than anything this world has to offer. So help us to keep our eyes fixed on the things above and to let go of the petty things below. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.